Hello, everybody. Before we get started, we want to tell you about Rico Symposium, the gathering of some of the most influential thinkers in the coffee industry. Rico, now in its 10th anniversary, returns this April 18th through the 19th to Seattle, Washington. The SCA is now accepting submissions to the Rico Fellowship Program, benefiting folks who are new to the coffee industry or for a variety of reasons, including financial, haven't had the opportunity to attend. The application deadline for the RICO Fellowship is January 19th, so don't miss it. Learn more about RICO at ricosymposium.org. That's ricosymposium.org. Also returning this April 19th through the 22nd is the SCA's Specialty Coffee Expo. Join us at the Washington State Convention Center for the 30th anniversary. That's right, the 30th anniversary of North America's largest coffee trade show. Expo features lectures like the one you're about to listen to, courses from the SEA's new coffee skills program, interactive experiences like uppers and downers, the U.S. Coffee Championships, and so much more. Learn more and register at coffeeexpo.org. That's coffeeexpo.org. Okay, let's get started with this week's episode. Welcome to the SCA Lectures podcast series, brought to you by Olam Specialty Coffee, Connecting Roasters to the Finest Specialty Green Coffees. The following is a talk presented live at the 2017 Global Specialty Coffee Expo, the largest annual gathering of specialty coffee professionals. Today what we're talking about is chemical physics. Essentially what this is, is the study of how chemicals interact with with temperature and other inputs of energy. And as all academic, oh yeah, and also I should note that all these slides, if you want to do uh, follow along or read uh, later on, if you want to refer back, they will be on my website, but for whatever reason, GitHub is not working today. Uh, So I've hosted these slides that you're about to see on the tiny URL right there. So I'll give you just a moment to to get into that. Those in the deep back there, uh, it's tiny URL M9HAOB2. All right. Here we go. So, as with all academic talks, we must introduce where we come from. Now, my grandfather cares a lot about where the Hendon family comes from. So, I've had my DNA sequenced, and I can tell you specifically where I've come from. 60,000 years ago, I'm from Chad. My Adam is here. And you'll note that my, well, my gene pool went up through F and then through G. F passing straight through Ethiopia, moving into somewhere like Yemen, and then heading up there. So, of course, I've been working in coffee a long time. Um, this is where I did my PhD. This is a nice place. This is Bath in the UK. Uh, we'll come back and talk a little bit more about Bath uh, in a moment. But what's important here is you'll note all the buildings have this aesthetic. This is, I, you could think of it as limestone, but they're spherical particles as opposed to sheets. And so in this case, we call that an ooid or bath stone. And the whole, the whole city is covered in this stuff. So it's a beautiful place. If you've seen Les Mis, at the end of that movie, the police officer is, you know, is ashamed and kills himself and jumps into the, the treacherous water. That treacherous water is here. It was filmed there. It's not treacherous at all. You can see little birds sitting on it and so on. Anyway, okay, then I moved to MIT. MIT is a pretty well-known place. Uh, my office, I presently sit right there. Um, and, it, you know, this school is famous for a lot of things. Now, I'm also pleased to announce, so this is, the, I guess, the first time the coffee community will have heard this, that I'm moving... Uh, in July, uh, to be a professor in chemistry at the University of Oregon. So that's nice. So I'll be coming over to this coast, and I've already met a fair few people from Eugene where I'll be living. So that's great. I'm really excited. What I'll be doing there, just to give you an update as to how I see parallels between coffee and what I actually do, 
is I'm a theoretical chemist, meaning I model materials. I use a computer, a really big computer, to put in the coordinates of different atoms. So here we have like carbon and other things, right? And I try and predict chemical properties from them. But my PhD was actually in porous materials, so materials that have tiny little molecular-sized holes in them. And porous materials behave the same, more or less, whether they're really small holes or really big holes, and it turns out coffee's porous too, right? So we can start thinking about uh, applying some of the theoretical methods that I use for this sort of thing to coffee. I'm also interested in electrical conductivity. But we're not here to talk about this stuff. We're here to talk about coffee, okay? So we need to motivate this. So uh, coffee research, academically at least, is it's incredibly valuable, but also an untapped commodity in the sense that uh, in 2015, coffee was worth about 1.5% of the U.S. GDP. Uh, and so when you say that number to a scientist, that's, a, that's huge. That's tremendous. If we're looking in, like, the formation of one petrochemical, that, this dwarfs that by, you know, two orders of magnitude. So coffee is incredibly valuable, and there's a ton of room for us to make incremental steps forward, whether it's in grinding physics, water chemistry, whatever. And even if it's a 1% advance, 1% of this is massive. Right? Now, how I view the coffee industry, of course, is from a scientific perspective, where there's variables associated with plants, roasting, and, of course, the other, other things here as well. But I don't have formal funding for this yet. And so what I find myself doing is actually working backwards. Instead of taking the big problems, which, of course, are on the, on the crop side, I'm actually working with people who are actual baristas. And so the, the experimentalists and the collaborators that I'll be discussing uh, work coming from them actually are, are to do with the brewing side. And so perhaps that's why it's so easy to grasp some of these concepts is because the, these are experiments that every one of us does every single day. Uh, and if we wanted to further coarse grain this, if I was going to say, uh, I guess maybe arbitrarily, what is important in producing high-quality coffee, I would state that, of course, the green quality is, is probably the most important thing. If you start with a high-quality green product, you have a really good chance of having a high-quality beverage at the end. Then, of course, there's roasting and water. Now, these are equal to me because, of course, water is not mutually exclusive from roasting. You're roasting and you're cupping and you're tasting that coffee with the water you've got, and so you establish what you like based on your water. And so they go hand in hand. But almost undoubtedly, equipment is one of the least important things because the way we prove whether coffee tastes good or not is with almost no equipment. We cup it, right? So the equipment side of things is probably the least important. But yet even a 1% even a difference here makes a difference to this whole pie. And so here's the layout of the talk that I want to give today. I have three topics. I wanted to talk on water chemistry, cryogenics, and espresso physics. Uh, but we're short on time, so we're just doing these two. Now, I know you probably think, so it's those who were here two years ago might remember that I spoke for the very first time ever to the coffee community on water chemistry in this exact event uh, at the WBC when it was here in Seattle. And what I want to demonstrate here is that uh, science is dynamic and I'm always learning stuff. And so at the moment, what we're going to do here is go back through some of the things that I've learned since writing Water for Coffee, right, and, and fix it. So here it is. It's better called this because I've received 3,427 emails asking the exact same questions. Okay, so I think if that's the case, then we actually have to go through it. Now, I want to demonstrate to you that this is a work in progress. Indeed, this is a page from my personal copy where you can see I need to rewrite this entire paragraph. This bit's, all, this, this bit's ruined. I've, yeah, you know, this is one, one, you know, two pages of water for coffee. 
And what's going to happen is we're going to eventually fix it all up again. And we're, we're going to have a new edition. And everybody who already has one, this is all going to be free online. The new edition for the people who bought it will be free. I'm not trying to make any money here, right? I just want to teach you water chemistry. And so why do we have so many corrections? Well, it's because in science we have peer review. But when you write a book, it doesn't go to peer review. So it means sometimes you write things that weren't quite right. And peer review in the coffee industry is I write a book and then you guys send me 3,000 emails. <laughs> so, so let me explain peer review. In the, 19, uh, in the 1750s, what would happen is scientists had humility and said, my work is interesting potentially, and sent it to an editor. The editor would then send it around to other peers to indeed uh, not check the validity of the work, but rather to see if it was of interest to that particular journal. The same is not said now. What we do now is we send the work to a journal because we think it should go there, and then if it goes there, then it goes to the review, and the reviewers try and make sure that the work is correct. Uh, and so what I'm talking about here is a, a revision based on whether I've uh, both of those things, whether it was of interest and also was it correct. So water chemistry 101. Everybody in this room probably is familiar now with calcium, magnesium, and bicarbonate. So just for a very brief overview, cations, or positively charged species, are something like sodium, potassium, calcium, magnesium, iron, if you're unlucky, in Helsinki or whatever. And anions are the things that balance out that positive charge. So for every one of these, there has to be a negative charge that balances it. And so anions include bicarbonate, chloride, uh, nitrate, sulfate, etc. You get the idea. And the thing about water is that it's highly regional. And so this is a map from, uh, of the UK showing that soft water locations, or in other words, low mineral content, so it's got low levels of calcium, magnesium, bicarbonate, all those things on the previous slide, are, are detailed in blue. And then you can see hard water locations down here in red, for example, are ones that have elevated levels of those things. And as it turns out, this map is actually far too coarse-grained because even going down the street or to your other, your other establishment, if you're a roaster and you have multiple accounts, two accounts in the same city can have different water, right? This is, not, this is far too coarse-grained. I want to go back to this water idea and relate it to bath. So bath, the word, of, we all know it in English, of course, to be where we would wash ourselves. And indeed, bath, the city, got its name from where the Romans went to wash themselves. It's the only natural hot spring in the U.K., and it, the city was founded in the year three, and the Romans thought that it was therapeutic to bathe in this establishment. So this is what it looks like today. It's a pretty place. And the water is really, really hard. Okay, so let's go through some of these. This is, this is the plaque from inside the establishment. And you'll state, obviously, or you'll see that obviously this, a chemist did not write this because sulfate doesn't have two minus, calcium's not two plus, etc. So, yeah, we'll write a formal inquiry. But... Uh, <laughs> But uh, nonetheless, the point here is, is, if you look at the sulfate concentration, that's 891 ppm, right? So for everyone here who's talking about 10 ppm differences, this is really, really high level of sulfate. So you start to think, why did the Romans like this water? Well, it turns out sulfate requires a lot of water to sulfate it. And, so if sul and sulfate doesn't go into your body. It stays in your GI tract. So what happens is you drink a lot of this water, the sulfate gets... The sulfate gets into your intestines, and then a lot of water is required to solvate that sulfate, and so the water goes into your intestines, then you shit yourself. So, the, so you get the idea, right? The Romans were liking this. Their high-protein diet, this was helping them move things along. The calcium, 
The calcium here is really high too at 406 ppm. And we'll note that this has the ion and we'll revise this in a moment. But the point is, is that 400 is really, really hard. This water is way harder than any water you'd come across. Maybe if you're in Kansas City, right? But this is pretty hard water. We have a variety of other things, but you'll note bicarbonate is at about 151 relative to 406. So you, you will note that this is indeed very rare water where there's way more calcium than there is bicarbonate. Bath is a really unusual place. Now, what do metals do? I keep going on about them. Well, let's take this schematic. You have coffee, and you're going to have some interface between the solid and the liquid. Now, if there's calcium floating around in water and it happens to pass by coffee and sees some pokey outy bit that's got a lot of oxygen on it, well, oxygen's relatively negative, and calcium's positive, and so they kind of stick together. And that's a, that's a pretty general overview of how this works. But in summary, what happens is calcium passes by. This thing binds to it at least transiently and, and gives it a little bit of a tug. And oop, out pops, uh, what is that, benzoic acid. Fabulous. All right. So here's, an, here's what a model might look like if you were doing my job. I have a computer. I can put in the coordinates, for example, for caffeine. Here's caffeine. And this black thing here could be any arbitrary metal. And I can go through and compute that energy, the offset you get from having the metal bound to that, that location on caffeine. And so we wrote a paper about this. And indeed, this paper has its own flaws. And most notably, EV to the general person is almost irrelevant. But the point, what's really important here is if you take lactic, malic, citric, quinic, chlorogenic acids, we also have caffeine. Uh, this is eugenol, which is a woody flavor. And we, all, and we compared their strength of binding to that of water binding to a metal. So if we have water plus calcium versus, for instance, eugenol plus calcium. Which, uh, which one binds more strongly? Now, if water binds very strongly to that metal, then you'd think that it's going to be hard for that metal to ever want to bind to anything else but water. And so as it turns out, sodium, which is in the, in the gray bars here, sodium binds pretty strong to water, and it does not bind very strong to caffeine or eugenol. So if you had sodium-rich water, you might expect that sodium will occupy some of the solvent ability of that water, and perhaps you might see a diminished amount of caffeine making it into your liquid simply because sodium will not bond to it. But this is a really small difference here, so maybe that's not true. It may be all part of noise. But what is definitely true is that magnesium and calcium bind very strong to oxygen sources. And so you see calcium, uh, in this case, in this binding mode here, to citric acid. If we take, for example, magnesium, the citric acid binding energy is here in, uh, in white or, or, or skin color or whatever that is. Um, and you see the water binding is there, and so because this is almost twice as strong, uh, what we're saying here really is that magnesium binds very strongly to calcium, uh, to, uh, excuse me, magnesium binds strongly to citric acid, perhaps facilitating the extraction of these acids, which is something we would like in coffee. In other words, what we're really saying here is we have this hipster who is responsible for all of these lovely flavors. We also have calcium who does something similar, and we'll discuss why he is destroying a, a what is this, a linea. Maybe it's a strata. It's a strata. Anyway, um, now we've got, we know, all right, positive charges, they're beneficial, okay? We're just rehashing some stuff we already know. Well, what about the anions? Well, they're the negative ones. They come in the same ratios as the positives. And so, of course, for every plus, there is a minus, and these minuses pose problems. Uh, now, anions typically are responsible for the control of pH. What pH is, is the power of H+. Plus. In other words, how acidic the solution is. If it's an H+, plus, then every anion, the minuses, are obviously going to impact the H+, plus concentration. It seems pretty straightforward. But it's not, because bicarbonate's kind of tricky. 
Bicarbonate's role is to stabilize pH. What happens is you start with H2O and CO2, and CO2 dissolves in H2O to form carbonic acid. This process makes water more acidic, and of course, this process is, is promoted with temperature. If you say that to the U.S. government, that is an alternative fact, right? What happens then, carbonic acid dissociates to form bicarbonate and an H plus floating around. And if there's a lot of this happening, you might get a little carbonate too. And what inevitably happens here is that this process sits somewhere in the middle, somewhere around here, right? Somewhere at the bicarbonate status. Okay, so if you add an acid to this system, you're adding an H plus, and so you're going to push it back this way. And if you add a base, you're going to push it the other way, and remove, a pro remove an H from this guy here. Let me demonstrate it to you in a chemical drawing. I think this is more intuitive. We have some water, which you may or may not be able to see. It's grayed out deliberately, and we have bicarbonate floating around in solution. H3O, uh, HC3, uh, you know what I'm saying, whatever. <laughs> I do. It's, it's early. Uh, you got a sodium there to balance out the charge. You got bicarb here. It's got a negative charge. And here's citric acid. It's floating around. And the first thing that happens is that negative charge will find that, that labile positive charge, which is indeed the proton, and that hydrogen is now going to transfer from citric acid over to bicarbonate. And so what happens is now you have carbonic acid floating around. This thing rapidly turns into CO2. It doesn't exist for very long. And you're left now with sodium and citrate, right? One proton removed from citric acid. Citric acid tastes like citric acid. Citrate does not taste like citric acid. You see, so what happens if you have bicarbonate around is it starts to destroy the acidity of these compounds because they're no longer acidic anymore. They've lost their ability to do this process. And so that's why bicarbonate is paramount, that controlling the bicarbonate is paramount in achieving an acidic and balanced cup of coffee because, of course, if we care about acids, then we're going to totally wipe them out with high levels of this stuff. And then, actually, in the last year, or maybe it was uh, maybe in the last year and a half or so, we were presented with this piece of work here, and this is lovely. It's a not only is it a beautiful tool, it's also a language, and it also embodies some some uh, way that I can connect with the coffee industry because before I didn't know that grapefruit and orange and all these things were as closely related. So I don't feel so stupid anymore when I try and tell you I th I taste grapefruit, right? But when I look at this, the WCR also publishes, of course, on the outside, the standards. So if you wanted to, for example, taste, well, let's go with the blueberry. If you wanted to taste blueberry, they present a way, and you should definitely do this to, to calibrate yourself. They present a way to go to the shop and buy something that is, has the flavor of blueberry so that you can all speak the same language when we taste blueberry. I look at that problem, and I think, oh, this is fabulous as a chemist we can maybe make an approximation that if something tastes like blueberry, perhaps it has the chemistry that a blueberry has in it for the flavors. Now, that whether that's true or not is to be seen, but that is certainly something that is true in this region down here, which are sour aromatics, acetic acid, and so on. Acetic acid is indeed acetic acid, right? So I know for certain this is, these, are, these chemistries are well-defined. So what's in a flavor? Well, let's take a look in the uh, citrus. Uh, where are we going to go? We're going to go in this area here, citrus fruit. So if we're looking at, at the f flavor notes versus actual flavor, maybe there's a disparity between the two. But perhaps not. Maybe we can learn something from this exercise as well. And one of the things is, all right, well, let's go through, and here's the literature reference for where we got the flavors that come out of grapefruit. Perhaps these were done from headspace chromatography, so essentially you're, what you might sniff 
Uh, and grapefruit is interesting. It has its own special compound called grapefruit mercaptan. Okay? But there's a ton of things in, in uh, all of the citrus fruits, and so these are just some of the operative ones. One of the particularly interesting ones that I think is the, that lemon has the S-limonene and lime has the R-limonene. Now, what that means is they're mirror images of each other. That's like saying lemon has my right hand in it and lime has my left hand in it. And those are chemically dissimilar, and it's, they have a different flavor because your tongue detects them differently. So that's quite interesting. But you'll note that a lot of these also, of course, have citric acid, ascorbic acid, and so on. Remembering that bicarbonate acts very strongly on things that are acidic, almost everything in coffee has, at le- or sorry, everything on the flavor wheel has some sort of acidic component to it, then you'd expect concentration of bicarbonate to affect what you can taste on the flavor wheel. And so I've constructed a representative uh, GIF here coming up where starting at KH of zero is no bicarbonate, or in other words, the full spectrum. And as you up the bicarbonate level all the way up to an arbitrary number of 100, we're going to start to wipe out flavors. And these are the flavor notes. If their compounds were responsible in the natural product, these are the flavor notes that would be wiped out if we had high levels of bicarbonate. And this is a really important slide I want to sit on for a little bit, because uh, this is something that was not detailed, of course, in any of the previous lectures and something that we, we know intuitively that if there's high levels of bicarb, I can't taste any of the grapefruit, orange, lemon, and lime acidity. It's gone, right? But actually, it's not only there. You actually wipe out a lot of the operative flavors coming through this whole region. And this is what I might say is the specialty coffee region, right? This is what we look for in a lot of these specialty coffees. And so several conclusions can be made from this point is that if you're going camping, for example, and you want to take a coffee with you that tastes good, but you have no idea what the water is going to be, why not take a coffee that's perhaps a Sumatran or a Brazil that is forward in these flavors over here? For instance, the toasted and sugary flavors that are not susceptible to changes in pH and changes in bicarb. If you're competing in a World Barista Championship and you wanna, you're, you're going to be traveling to Seoul and you want to present the best coffee you possibly can, maybe you want to compete with a Colombian coffee that does feature some of these notes in, inherently so they're going to be forward regardless of what the water is. So several things come from this. The final one is if you're grading coffee and you're on a cupping table, some of these flavors can be wiped out. And with training, with high levels of bicarb, you can train yourself to see beyond what the water is masking. And I challenge you to go home with baking soda at some point and do the citric acid test like you might do if you were training for the Q graders and up the levels of bicarb and just see at what point you start to taste these peculiar flavors. A simple experiment and a fun one to do. Now, I say calcium, magnesium, they're fabulous. They're great for everything we want, but actually, unfortunately, calcium is susceptible at high temperatures to crystallize with bicarbonate. The bicarbonate liberates one proton, forms carbonate in that cycle I showed before, and inevitably, it goes through this reaction. Calcium plus a couple of bicarbs gives you calcium carbonate. These are the two crystal structures that are common. This is limescale. Now, we know in the bottom of a kettle, limescale is flat and sheet-like. And it's flat and sheet-like because that also comes from its chemical structure. Here, you can see there's a layer of calcium, then a layer of carbonate, and so on. It's sheet-like because at the molecular level, it's sheet-like. And if you want to dissolve limescale, all you have to do is add something that's on this side to push it back the other way. Well, you're not going to add more limescale to your limescale to dissolve it, right? That's not what you want to do, so of course you're going to add some acid. And indeed, that's how you remove limescale. You add acid, and it pushes it back the other way. So it all makes, it makes sense. Now, this is aragonite. It's a different crystal structure. It's much more dense, and it's a bit rigid. 
Calcite is there. Aragonite is the one that cuts you on the end of the tap. And so you're all probably familiar with this. This one's a little harder to remove, but again, you still the same concept. You add acid, it, it will dissolve. Another thing we did not discuss was machine health. At, in the time when we first wrote this, I said calcium chloride is a, way, a good way to achieve high calcium levels without having any of the bicarbonate problems, but it turns out, of course, that chloride catalytically decomposes stainless steel, and all of your machine boilers are made of stainless steel. And under high temperature and high pressure, that's an excellent environment to put a pitting corrosion straight through one of your boilers and essentially void all of your warranties. The way it works is you have dissolved oxygen and there's some surface of iron here. And then on the surface of that iron, there's some oxide, iron oxide or iron hydroxide, depending on what's around. Now, this process of rust is always going to occur because the formation of rust, iron oxide, if you like, is at the bottom of the energy well. It's where everything that has iron in it is going to. It's where you're going to with the iron in your body, I guarantee it, right? So what's going to happen, though, is that chloride actually destabilizes the surface layer that's protecting that iron and also helps that relay between iron solid to iron 2 plus. And so this is bad news. So chloride is not good for stainless steel. With that, we concluded this picture. This is the water picture, if you like, the one that, that helps you build water. So you have a bicarbonate relationship uh, with, with calcium and, and magnesium. But I will contend that, and that this is not useful because what actually happened here is that there is a, a confusion about the units that these were in, and I was politely uh, advised uh, from Professor Chahan Yuretsian and a postdoc of his, Marco Willinger, that I'd made a tremendous mistake. And indeed, I had. So we're going to go through and demonstrate why I'd made this mistake at this point, and then we're going to correct it. So uh, here's the problem. That the way that you used to measure what was in water was you'd just boil it until it was dry and then weigh what was left. And it turns out that most of the time that would be calcium carbonate. Or if it was salt water, it would be sodium chloride. But you get the idea. Drinking water would be calcium carbonate. And it also turns out that calcium carbonate has a mass of 100, and that number is nice. Humans like 100 because you can divide it by 100, and it's, you know, it's a percentage now. And so what happened was the, the water industry developed around, if you were to boil dry everything that's in your water and then weigh it at the end, we could state that as if we'd assumed all of it was calcium carbonate, and because calcium carbonate's mass was 100, we could do some easy math and tell you a percentage of it in the water. And everyone here is getting that, like, oh, it makes a lot of sense, except when you're a chemist, because we do not count like that at all. What we care about is the number of calciums in the water, not its mass. Because if calcium happened to be switched out, for example, for magnesium using an exchange cartridge, magnesium weighs a lot less, and it doesn't crystallize with bicarbonate. And so doing this process doesn't help you. And so this was the mistake I made, is that if I said to you that I wanted to put in 40 ppm of calcium, it was confusing because was I referring to 40 ppm calcium as the ion itself or calcium as the convention would state as measured as calcium carbonate? And there's a big difference. For calcium, 40 ppm is calcium is calcium, but as the carbonate, it's 100. And you can st it gets worse with magnesium because at magnesium, the, the ratio is I'm off by a factor of four. And so now when I say add 25 ppm of magnesium, what I'm really stating there is actually adding 100 ppm of magnesium in that other unit. I know you're confused, as was I for quite some time. The take-home message here, the same applies for bicarbonate. It goes the other way. The take-home message is FML. All right. So 
You get the idea. So here, here it is, right? So here's the new one. I really want to spend a little bit of time. Take a photo, right? This is useful. And the next, the next slide is useful. So we're going to arrive at the graph the same way that we did when we were first doing this. What we did here is we say, okay, we know that bicarbonate wipes out the, the acids in coffee. And at some point, the coffee has no more acids in it. So there's going to be a hard cutoff and where the bicarbonate just can't get any higher. But if we under-extract the coffee, then we're, we're going to have a proportionally high level of, bicar uh, of acids in there as well because they come out real fast, right? And so what happens is we arrive at some sort of hard cutoff of bicarb. Now, we're quite content in, in extracting a ton of stuff using calcium and magnesium. And so we can go up here and we can go out here and you quickly arrive at something that looks like this if you want to go through and do it yourself. This is not saying that this water right in the middle makes the best coffee uh, at all. In fact, quite the opposite. What it's saying is that this water does, has the least fluctuation in extraction parameters. So if you have something that is acidic, it's going to taste the same uh, or at least as close to every time you try and brew it because you won't have any of those variabilities that come from bicarbs, temperature fluctuations, all sorts of stuff. But there's another thing here. Now this graph also contains the chemistry measurement, which is in mole. Now I know you guys probably are like, well, that's useless. I totally agree. Uh, what's more useful is this side. So I've included how much uh, calcium as the ion do you need to add to achieve this point. And so if you added 80 as the ion, then you'll, you'll get to 200 and so on. And then the blue is where the magnesium is. And you get the idea, right? This is, you can quickly construct something like this. And everyone in the audience is like, oh, great, but now I still have to do math, so I've done it for you. Here we are. Okay. So this slide's pretty heavy duty, and I'm going to go nice and slow so you can take your time to write it down. The important part is in the, in the bold, and the, le the least important part is un under that, and you can see where this point shows up. So the money shot is right there. This is a full magnesium uh, money shot, if you like, um, where you have magnesium uh, Epsom salt, so magnesium sulfate, and sodium bicarb, and these concentrations per liter, and then what you inevitably get to is a water here. I call this one the 7 and 7. This is a, a demonstration for people who are doing cupping. Uh, this is a great example for what people might be tasting if they had slightly harder water when they're taking your coffee home. So this is useful if you're in the roastery and you want to taste something that's representative of a consumer coffee, a consumer water, excuse me. And that puts you up around here. And this one is for the Australians. This is the Double Rizzy Deluxe. <laughs> And this is why all Australian coffee tastes the same, because you can't extract anything, but you're not buffering anything, so it's light-bodied, high acidity. That's a classic Melbourne shot. And the thing is that in Melbourne, all the water is the same everywhere. It's super soft, and all the roasters are using water to cup it, so the, the coffee tastes good everywhere, because it's all homogenized. The same can be said about San Francisco. The same can be said about New York. And pretty much any coffee community you'll find that the water doesn't fluctuate around, the, around that city. And if you want to go through, you can geographically pinpoint places you associate with good coffee with soft water. Note that I'm not stating here that soft water results in good coffee. What I am stating here is that that's what they're using to achieve consistency. So, what are we extracting? It appears we have a slide roulette going on here. This is a a 5 a.m. endeavor. All right. Nonetheless, what are we extracting? Okay, uh, we're going to skip that part we, for time. Um, one of the questions I recently answered was, what happens if you add sugar to your coffee after you've brewed it? In special industry, we look down our nose at this occasionally because some people simply quite like sugar, more sugary drinks than others, and we somehow think we have the jurisdiction to tell people that's wrong. Uh, but more importantly, 
so there has been a series of papers that have been published discussing the idea that if you add sugar, perhaps you affect chemistry in that cup as well. And one of the operative principles that is dogma in, this indus- in my field was that the addition of sugar caused caffeine to dimerize. In other words, forms two little caffeine sticking together like this. And therefore, a crude conclusion was made that the addition of sugar suppressed bitterness because caffeine is, of course, bitter. I didn't like that conclusion because I I know chemistry a little bit, and I know that, indeed, caffeine sticks together through something called a pie stack. And pie stacking is really weak. And water is really hot in coffee, and it's also really good at solvating things. And so we went through and showed that in, in, a, in this publication here, um, we went through and showed that, the, indeed, the energy between two caffeine molecules is not very high, even if you add a ton of sugar. And so the question really is, is what happens if we add sugar? And the answer is nothing. Okay, so um, what? it gets sweeter, and humans like sugar, so that's what it is. Uh, what, but we can talk a little, uh, where did this idea even come from, right? It wasn't from this industry, right? The sugar idea was not from, from coffee people saying that indeed it tastes less bitter. What it actually came from was that the addition of sugar or salt to water makes the water less capable of dissolving things because, of course, it's now got stuff in it. But why is that? And it turns out it's because if water has a pole, we know it as polar, then when you put stuff in it, you're going to align these poles in very particular ways to help solvate whatever's in there. In other words, you're aligning them. And they're not going to disorder again. And so once they're aligned, you're going to have things binding like this around sodium. And in this case, that means that water is no longer capable of solvating other things. And so as it turns out, like we just said, sugar does... Sugar perhaps suppresses bitterness, but maybe that's just perception. It's definitely not from a chemistry perspective. And to further that, uh, what we also might see here is that caffeine uh, is much bigger if it sticks as two, and now you need a lot more water to solvate it, so it costs energy to do that as well. And so this was not a good conclusion, but indeed, of course, this, I wrote this paper, and then the Wall Street Journal picks it up and goes, adding sugar to your coffee may- suppresses bitterness. And I was like, that is the opposite of what I just said. I thought I would like to share with you now one of the emails that I receive. This, I, please take your time to read this. Or in fact, for those in the, maybe I'll read it for those in the back. <laughs> I <laughs> just read your Wall Street Journal piece, and I have a question that's vexed me for a few days. Last Thursday, I attended a Catholic Jewish Hanukkah luncheon. <laughs> Three Catholics, two Jews took coffee with the meal. I put a little, t- one... They all put some cream into their sugar, uh, sorry, into their coffee. The Catholics added sugar. The Jews added an artificial sweetener, choosing sweet and low over Splenda. (laughs) What to make of it? Bob from San Antonio. (laughs) What to make of it, indeed. I, I thought for a long time about this problem. We have, <laughs> we have sweet and low, which is saccharin. We have sucrose, which is sugar, and we have sucralose, which is Splenda. Well, I don't know. <laughs> all, right, all right, all right, let's move on. Uh, all right, we're moving on to cryogenics. So yesterday I spoke at RICO. Uh, two days ago I spoke at RICO, and some I can see some RICO badges in the audience here, uh, and, and most, of course, were not there. And I wanted to go over some of my work on cryogenics. If you were at RICO, this is, by and large, more or less the same thing I discussed at RICO, so I apologize if I'm boring. I understand if you need to go. So cryogenics, what is this? Well, 
Quite simply, it is the study of how things behave when you cool them down. In other words, temperature. We're looking at temperature control. The word cryo comes from Greek, meaning cold, and genics, meaning the production of. And we do this in material science all the time. Of course, you want to know if your bridge is going to collapse in Antarctica if it cools down, right? These are, these are fundamental problems. And why do we cool things down? Of course, it's for preservation. We've been putting steaks in the freezer for as long as we can remember, right? I've got a steak in the freezer for longer than I can remember. So, <laughs> but when you hear the word cryogenic, right, you don't think of, like, cooling peas or whatever. You think of ice cube people, right? <laughs> so here we have Bjorn Borg and John McEnroe, have just discovered Utzi, the 5,300-year-old Austrian-Italian Iceman. And I really like this photo. Right? This is real. And I really like this photo because look at the objects they happen to go find to poke it with to see if it's dead. <laughs> it's, it's, it is, it is, look at him. He's clearly dead. Okay? But the thing is, though, he's 5,300 years old. And he's looking pretty good for 5,300 years old because he's well-preserved. Now, of course, if you're thinking cryogenics, you're thinking freeze and then thaw out like Austin Powers and be ready to do things. Now, Utsi is dead, so that didn't work too well, but actually, in his case, he was probably dead already. So that, you know, for whatever reason. I don't know of the technology that exists to freeze somebody and thaw them out and then have them reanimate and do things, but we don't need to look too far for the empirical evidence of such a thing. Here's Bill Shatner, allegedly 86 last year. And in the industry, we need to look for somebody equally spry and well-preserved. Uh, but why is it hard to freeze and thaw people out? It's because of water, and I know I keep going on. I'm that water guy. I get it. All right. But it's hard because water has four things that we need to concern ourselves with, the most important being phase, density, concentration, and kinetics. In other words, movement from temperature. So let's go through it. Phase. Phase transformations quite simply are the, the uh, amount of energy required to progress from liquid to solid and solid to gas, etc. And you can construct a phase diagram for liquid, solid, and gas for every material under the sun. Every single thing. Even the sun itself, right? You can do it for everything. This happens to be the one for water. Now let's explore this for a moment. We have temperature ranging from whatever, absolute zero, all the way up to whatever temperature we want to go to. And we know at one atmosphere of pressure, which is where we're here at sea level and in Seattle, right? And we have, uh, we boil it at 100 degrees Celsius. And what that means is at 100 degrees Celsius, we transform from liquid water to, of course, steam. And so there you go. There's that transformation, and we call that boiling. Conversely, if we were to take steam and cool it down, that is, of course, condensation. And you can see there's a temperature and pressure dependence on that. More importantly for this purpose uh, is indeed the transformation from liquid to solid that is what we would call freezing of course we all know this if you put ice oh, sorry liquid water into your freezer it will freeze and form ice and the ice is the solid form of water conversely going from solid to liquid is so-called melting and you can go around this thing and, and entertain yourself with sublimation which is solid to gas etc and we're familiar with solid to gas if you have a piece of coffee it's it's a solid and then you're smelling stuff, so there's a transformation going from solid directly to gas. So that's a sublimation. But what's really important is that if something is already solid, then something is already frozen because that process has already occurred. This chair is frozen. A solid coffee bean is frozen. So it's not a liquid. So when we put solid coffee into a freezer, the freezer word refers to the freezing of water. But solid coffee is indeed a frozen substance already, so all we're doing is cooling. 
All right. Well, what happens, let's think about water still. What happens when we cool water? Well, in the previous talk, Greg gave a, a beautiful overview of water expanding as you heat it. We know that, of course, right? You heat it up, eventually it's going to turn into a gas and fill the room. And so you very rapidly see that the maximum density here of water is at 4 degrees Celsius. You heat it, it starts to expand. But water is weird because it forms these six-membered rings here uh, of little networks like this. And as you cool water, those networks... Uh, order themselves and water starts to expand as well and the density of water at high temperature let's say 20 degrees celsius room temperature and the density of water at minus 10 are the same and so the expansion water's you know water is pretty dynamic stuff the third thing we need to know about is osmosis osmosis is quite simply the movement of water from regions with a lot of it to regions with not a lot of it that's pretty intuitive and a slide that is very important is indeed uh, this slide discussing kinetics Kinetics is the movement of atoms, the movement of materials, due to heat, due to latent heat or an input of energy of some description. Imagine you have a ball, and at 20 degrees Celsius, it's moving this way, and a different ball, at 10 degrees Celsius, it's moving at half the speed. And actually, from the Arrhenius equation and a formulation also known as the Eyring equation, uh, it turns out that for every 10 degrees we cool something down, that pro every process, more or less, happens at about half the rate. So... That's, that's been shown to be true, certainly for the volatilization of coffee compounds uh, and, and some of the work that Chahan Yuretsian has done. Um, but what's really important here is going from 20 Celsius at room temperature down to a conventional freezer temperature of minus 20 is 40 degrees difference, so that's 2 times 2 times 2 times 2, which is 16 times slower at freezer temperature. So everything happens at 16 times slower when you put it in the freezer, more or less. That's an over... I, I'm sure I'll get an email, okay? But you get, you get the idea. So, we're going to go back to cooling of biomaterials. This is the uh, biologically accurate representation of a plant. You see that the plant has... Uh, plant cells. There's a cell wall that has some stuff inside, and then there's a whole bunch of them, and there's some stuff in between them. And that's pretty much all you need to know for the purpose of this discussion, that there is a little bit of water, but not much. We know in specialty coffee that amount of water is about what? 10 to 12 percent when it comes in green and it's not a reservoir if you take a knife and cut the bean open it doesn't spill water out of it these are not reservoirs of water these are in like little water molecules all throughout the seed so what actually happens when we cool this down well everyone thinks okay you freeze something and you pull it back out of the freezer and it's ruined that you can't plant the seed anymore it's no longer viable it can't germinate it cannot propagate into a plant and is it because the water has expanded inside, this, inside the cell wall and ruptured all these cell walls and it's no longer capable of doing normal things? And that's actually probably not the case because there's no true reservoirs of water. What is actually the case is probably a mixture of a little bit of that, but also the movement of water between the cell walls out into this extracellular fluid and you have some water out there, and you have a concentration gradient, and the pH on the inside of the cell gets messed up, and all sorts of compounding factors. And, okay, inevitably, the cell no longer works as a cell, but you didn't really do anything chemically. You've just, for whatever reason, it doesn't perform its biological function. It turns out that for, if you were going to store seeds for crop preservation, the freezing and then thawing protocol matters because, for whatever reason, these cell walls ha uh, have some genetic... Uh, composition associated with it and some gene some plants allow this movement of water and are resilient to freezing and thawing and other plants typically tropical ones do not do so well when you put them in the freezer and pull them back out again 
I'm not in this, I'm not in this business, so I don't fully, I can't talk on this forever, but the point here is, is that coffee is one of those plants that you can't put in the freezer, pull it back out, and then expect to be able to plant a plant from it. But, who cares? Because we're about to roast it. So it doesn't matter if you destroy its cellular function as long as no chemistry, adverse chemistry has occurred, right? So as long as you're not imparting negative flavors into this seed at any appreciable rate, then if you put the green coffee in the freezer and then pull it out of the freezer and let it thaw out, which is, of course, warm back up to room temperature, uh, nothing really bad should happen as long as you roast it soon thereafter. So what happens when we put it in the freezer? Well, you slow down everything. So imagine you, you get a coffee that's beautiful, and its aging process has not started to occur yet. There's no bag flavor, and there's nothing that we would associate with a negative flavor coming from coffee that's perhaps 9 to 12 months old. Well, if you put that in the freezer, that's an enzymatic process, and you're probably not ever going to taste that. This will never, ever occur, and you'll extend that, sh- that shelf life almost indefinitely. The next thing that might happen that you might be interested in is that, that of course, the uh, high-value crops, right, you get a beautiful, you know, Esmeralda or whatever, and you're so excited about it, and you want to make sure that it tastes as good today as it does in six months for whatever reason. Perhaps it's competition. Perhaps it's showing off to your friend. I don't even know, right? But the point is you can put it in the freezer, and it should, in principle, take a photograph of, of what chemical composition was there the day you put it in. Note that the shelf life of green coffee is about, let's say, one year. And if you put it in the freezer and you slow everything down by 16 times, that shelf life is now, uh, well, I don't know, 16 years. But it, depending on how cold you go, you keep halving and halving again. And there's some work to be done. This is a hard experiment to do because it takes literally years. Uh, finally, you might be interested in this if you're a big-time roaster. One of those guys who wants to produce, like, the same blend with the same flavor profile year-round on a massive scale. Right? If you need that, then you don't want natural fluctuation and variability in the, in the product you're producing because, of course, an Ethiopian coffee does not taste the same as an Ecuador or whatever, and when you're trying to blend them together with your pulp natural Brazil, you're not going to achieve the same flavor profile. But as with everything in coffee, there is a price associated with flavor. The best coffees always are the most expensive. So the first question is, does freezing and thawing taste good? Can you get a good tasting green coffee after freezing and thawing it? And actually, uh, so George Hal did join us at Rico and presented three coffees that he'd frozen since 2012, uh, a Guatemalan, uh, Ethiopian, and his Kenyan Mamuto, all of which had been stored, of course, for five years, roasted last week, and there was absolutely no age on them whatsoever, and the, and the Ethiopian coffee was fantastic. They were, they were good, right? It didn't taste bad at all. And if you do see them, corner them and say, give me some, right? All of you. Uh, <laughs> Now, all right, how much does it cost? Okay, so this is a tricky one because it costs about one U.S. cent per pound of green to freeze it per month. But that's, a, that's an industrial-sized thing. So what you do is you, you, you get pallets and you send it off to a food storage facility and they'll do it for you. And, you know, a bag of coffee, or I've estimated here, 100 bags might be 150 U.S. a month. That's cheap. And then, you, of course, you have to transport it in a frozen van and so that adds another cent per pound. So it comes in to be about... Two U.S. cents per pound per month. You can build that into your business, no problem. So the conclusion at this point for freezing of green coffee is, okay, we're not going to try and put Tipica away in case Tipica disappears in Costa Rica, right? That's not what we're trying to achieve. Indeed, freezing of green coffee should prolong the shelf life indefinitely, taking a, a snapshot of the flavor profile that it had before you put it in the freezer. Now, James Hoffman 
uh, and I had discussed this, he presented a philosophical problem that was sometimes coffees taste better with a little bit of age on them. You know, sometimes a green product actually turns out to taste real good in about six months from when it arrives. That's, this is poker here, right? You've got to go all in. If you want to do this, you're going to have to accept that that's the flavor you're going to get when you pull it out of the freezer again. I can't advise you. We don't know if it's going to turn, you know, we don't know if that coffee would have been better with a bit of age on it. What about freezing a roasted coffee? All right, so the question now is we've roasted it. We've turned a, a whole bunch of cellular stuff into a whole bunch of volatile stuff, and there's a lot of stuff in coffee. So here's a quarter of them. On the left, you'll see the acids fly by. I particularly like this slide, actually. I show it every time. I'm sure some of you have seen this like five times now. But I, I do like this slide because of this section here. So this is a chemistry paper, and they couldn't work out where to put these miscellaneous flavors or smells or whatever. So, I, I mean, all of these are pretty much solvents in our lab, so you don't want to drink any of those. But um, what happens, right? So, so there's now another thing associated with smells and, and flavors is that as you cool stuff down, uh, you know, it, it's subliming at whatever rate, and it, it's boiling if it's a liquid and so on. And so as you cool stuff down, there's some sort of pressure dependence on whether this thing's going to be volatile or not. And so as we cool, we're actually decreasing uh, the rate in which this is being, these compounds are being liberated from the coffee. In other words, you're making the coffee stop smelling as you cool it, Right? It makes, it makes sense. But we're not, we're not talking like a, a cup of coffee. We're talking roast, roasted coffee. You put it in the freezer, what happens is you condense all of the flavors into that seed. Nothing is going to be liberated. Or not at an appreciable rate, anyway. So here's some stuff that might be in coffee. You've got a, f- a few of these little guys. Uh, this is uh, 2-methylfuran. This is a marker for freshness. Um, and there's a ton of papers, uh, including Chahan's fabulous paper here that details the, the, uh, the loss of this compound. And indeed, what we're thinking about here when we're freezing roasted coffee is a, a kinetic, of course, the rate in which this is, these compounds are coming out of the, of the bean, and an osmotic problem. And I say osmotic because this seed that has now been roasted has no water in it, and the freezer has a ton of water in it, right? It's, at, there's, it's condensing water, and so what happens is if you just put that seed sitting right there out in the open, it's going to condense some of the water and some of the smells that are floating around in your freezer. So the freeze-thaw protocol really matters in the case of pr- preservation of smell, taste, and so on for roasted coffee. Now, I want to demonstrate to you that there's two ways you might be able to do this. One, you could store in an airtight container under dry air. So if you happen to be in a place with really low relative humidity, you might just be able to get away with putting your coffee into a Tupperware container and just putting it in the freezer. But a better way and a more persistent way of doing this would be to vacuum seal using a food-grade sealer. You just vacuum it, throw it in the freezer, and dose. That's one way of doing it as well. Is there any other advantages of freezing coffee? Of course. Uh, I, uh, this year, oh, just at the end of last year, I suppose... We detailed uh, how the grinder performs differently if you grind frozen coffee, cooled coffee. And so here at room temperature, you can see that, indeed, there is some sort of hip here on the particle size distribution. And simply by cooling down to conventional freezer temperature, that hip goes away. So there it is. And so on. You can keep cooling if you have the facilities down to liquid nitrogen temperature. And what this is actually saying, these are the number of fines is saying that not only are we producing, okay, more or less the same number of fines by cooling, but what we're actually getting here is a more uh, Gaussian-like distribution. In other words, we're tightening up how, what the size of those fines are. And, of course, the fines are responsible for imparting most of the flavor and also most of the bad flavor in your coffee, so most good and bad. 
Uh, and so we do care about the shape of these finds. So cooling coffee does give you a bit of an advantage there, also minimizing the latent heat generated in the grinding process. A busy cafe's grinder will not get hot if you're constantly grinding something cold. Something I learned this uh, last couple of, I guess, couple of months was what happens if we grind finer? This is something intuitive. I always thought that if you grind finer, you just make everything finer. But as it turns out, that's not the case. And we'll discuss why that is on the next slide. But in summary, we generate more fines as we grind finer, and we generate uh, while simultaneously shifting this peak uh, more fine as you grind finer, right? So in other words, this goes up and this goes left, right? In other words, what's happening is as we grind the coffee, every time we crack the coffee in half, some fines are produced at that interface, and they all happen to be more or less the same size. And so the more times we crack the coffee, the more fines we produce. That's a pretty intuitive uh, I guess, conclusion. When I said that in a department of mathematics, I got a, a guy raise his hand at the end, and when you're in a maths department, a guy raises your hand, you start sweating a little bit, and, he, and he's like, I have a comment, not a question. And, <laughs> uh, fabulous, okay. And he's like, uh, and uh, I think, and so he's like, uh, you know, he developed a, uh, a theory for why volcanic rocks fracture the way they do when they're ejected out of a volcano and it turns out volcanic rocks have exactly the same particle size distribution as that of ground coffee. And because volcanic rocks are an amorphous material, and so every time they fracture, they generate fines, and you arrive at exactly the same particle size distribution as I showed here. So that's pretty sweet. So, <laughs> so let me share with you another email tangentially related to that. Uh, this, this is a fabulous one. Dear Professor Hendon, I have a master's degree in physics, in brackets, entrepreneurship program. I don't even know what that means. Uh, from Case Western Reserve University. I live in Guatemala, I, okay, and I'm aware of massive contamination of plastics and other bio, uh, non-biodegradable and toxic substances in the country. This person has thought, I've thought of this, disposing of the waste, the plastics and other non-biodegradable substances into the lava... Uh, <laughs> Uh, at the craters of volcanoes, and then gives me a note that he has at least two active volcanoes. <laughs> he asked me this, and then he asked a series of questions like, can lava break bonds and so on? I greatly appreciate your feedback and time, Jorge. <laughs> Jorge has just arrived at the idea that people in Louisiana have arrived at that it's a good idea to burn trash. <laughs> All right, thanks, Jorge. All right, so anyway, um, <laughs> so. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about value propositions. We, we've, we've done the water, and now we're going to go through the value propositions of cooling coffee. Cooling roasted coffee, I should be specific. Uh, indeed, um, cooling keeps the volatiles in, it helps the grinder perform better, and it indefinitely ceases the staling. I had to ask the question, of course, just to make sure that I wasn't going crazy here uh, and I wasn't off the mark. But, of course, if the coffee's frozen, it can't then go into a hopper because then it will just heat up all day. So I had to ask the question if the specialty industry was embracing the idea of single-dose grinders, whether that's an EK43, an EG1, or you know, some, some other sort of grinder. And it turns out about 50% of people use these things on a day-to-day -day basis for at least espresso. And so one of the things I'm really excited about is this idea of menu development. So if you vac seal every coffee you get in the shop and you dose it out and then put it in the put it in your freezer, and you develop a recipe based on pulling it out of the freezer, grinding it frozen, extracting it that way, you will get something that tastes good. And what you have to do is write it down. For example, uh, Tim Wendelbo's coffee. You write it down, 
and uh, and you put that on, label on every single one of those sachets that has the same mass in the freezer, and then what you're going to do is simply pull it out, turn the grinder to where it needed to be, and then pull the shot exactly the same way, and essentially you can then find yourself with a menu that has a hundred different offerings of coffees that are never going to go stale of all the finest coffees around the world. This concept, to my knowledge, has not been uh, fully embraced yet, but Michael Cameron, uh, who is who's probably the maverick of actually applying this, has been doing something along these lines, and I'm quite excited about that. I hope to be able to walk into a shop at some point where you have an espresso machine and a wall of frozen sachets, and you say, I would love to try the 2013 Cup of Excellence, right, from Colombia or something like this. That would be awesome, right? It would be really fun. Roasted by someone you know, somewhere or whatever. The next thing I'm excited about is decaf. Uh, this is like the black sheep of the coffee industry, but actually it's pretty expensive stuff. Anybody who buys it knows that decaf's expensive because the process costs money to remove it, and so the quality of coffee is going up, but we're paying a lot. We don't want to waste any of this stuff. This is gold. So one thing you can do is just simply vac seal each one of those and then do all your de- decaf through a single grind grinder, right? A single dose grinder. And then what you're inevitably doing is minimizing the decaf staling, and you're saving yourself, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars per year just simply because you're not wasting it anymore. So at this point, I thought I'd leave you with, uh, so last year, you may have remembered, we finished the talk, and there was not enough time to do any questions, and we didn't have a discussion, and I don't want that to be the case this year, and I am aware that most of this stuff was going back and rehashing some of the things that we've already learned, uh, but it, I think it's important to, to um, reiterate these concepts because they're challenging. So I want to leave you with a couple of points here. First of all, that storing of the green coffee at low temperatures can indefinitely prolong its shelf life whilst taking a photograph of the flavors that were in the coffee at that time. The second thing is that indeed freezing of roasted coffee should, should also condense all of those lovely smells and things that we like in the coffee almost indefinitely. Grinding of cold coffee, you can go and read the paper. It's an open access paper if you'd like to see it, but it's an interesting conclusion there that indeed grinding cold coffee does have a benefit physically. And also that we can maybe envisage saving some money and expanding our uh, coffee offering somehow. Kind of fun. Uh, this is quite simple. And in fact, I know at least a couple of people in the audience who have had, who've already experimented with this. If you don't believe me, and that's fair enough, you should just go try it. If you don't like it, don't do it, right? Put some roasted coffee in the freezer in a vac seal bag, dial in a recipe, and see if you can get something that tastes good. And if it doesn't work, send me an email. Sounds good. Um, so I'm going to come back to this discussion points because I want to have a discussion with you here. And I want to take some questions. But I want to first acknowledge uh, everybody who's contributed to this talk, uh, including professors from around the world, multiple universities. But I also want to thank you guys because this is a picture of my mother uh, competing in the Cup Taster Championship in 2015 in Melbourne. And you'll note that that's Matt Perger's hand holding a time of 1 minute 13 seconds and she went five for eight. Halfway through, she's, she could have gone under one minute, but she halfway through turned to the person competing next to her, who was Craig Simon, and told him to hurry up. <laughs> so, so, but the reason she can do this is because this industry is inclusive, right? And we never should lose that. So I'm a scientist. I came into the industry three or four years ago, right? And I, I, I'm up here, and I have a room full of people learning science. It's a great platform for that. I love that. But I also love the fact that I can share it with my mom who is also well-preserved. So with that, <laughs> with that, I'd like to thank you guys for coming along. I'll totally take any questions.
I was just wondering if you have played with um, nitrogen flushing as opposed to <coughs> back sealing? Yeah, so I didn't detail this, but indeed oxygen, so the, the, the question is saying, will nitrogen flushing have a positive effect, right, on, on, on the storage of coffee? I didn't discuss that, but indeed oxygen is a problem because oxygen will inevitably lead to oxidation through some mechanism that is unknown uh, in, in coffee. Uh, I'm aware that nitrogen or other inert gas storage does actually prolong shelf life of already ground coffee, for example, uh, almost indefinitely, and it does, a, it does a pretty good job. Although people do notice that there is still some degradation of flavor and one thing that could be interesting is storing under nitrogen and then storing in the freezer, right? That, would, that could be very interesting. But I think you might achieve something similar to that of vac sealing. Hi there. Um, so, really love the presentation. Um, but have there been other people that have taken the uh, grinding frozen uh, a step farther? Because frequently when you swap out burrs with your grinder and stuff, your grind parameters change a little bit. So if you have like a huge vintage selection and you're going to have to take out a couple bags and, and give that a go. So have people gone a step farther and ground roasted coffee, set the parameters, and then grind two batches and freezing that? So just, that just uh, sorry, to uh, reiterate and make sure I fully understood, are you asking have people pre-ground the coffee and then froze it? Yes. Yeah, so actually, um, that would be where you'd see the most tremendous difference. Because with the increase, not for positive, right? But just the, you would ex extend the life of that ground coffee by cooling it down. Because the surface area goes up a ton as you grind it. So you're going to start liberating tons of compounds really fast because that surface area is through the roof now, right? So if you cool that down, then you're going to see the rate of that drop a lot. And that's going to be where it's really obvious because the difference will be uh, this coffee is no longer bright and, and exciting in 30 minutes versus it's going to be bright and exciting tomorrow if you pull it out, right? Something like that. But to my knowledge, nobody does that. Um, maybe, maybe because, uh, I, I guess maybe because it's easier to store whole bean coffee or it stays fresh longer when it's whole bean. It, you, you're going against the status quo is the point. So, I'm yeah, aware. It's a, good, it's a good, we should try it. And if, I also realize that these are small batches that people are grinding, but we're talking about at the shop that, we're, that, that we work at that if we, if, people do this at larger scale, so your, co your grinder's constantly going, and you're grinding frozen coffee, Does, will, do you think condensation on the burrs itself will be a problem? Yeah, so if the burrs ever drop below zero degrees Celsius, you definitely, you, and you might even see them on the burrs as they cool down to like five Celsius. So yeah, absolutely could be a problem. So what I, what I would hope the application would be is in a, sh a situation where you might pull out a coffee and grind this coffee and then let the burrs equilibrate back to the temperature they started at, which would be room temperature. But th this is an area that I think we need to do a tremendous amount of work in to, before it can make a conclusive statement. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Are we talking about uh, coffee that's air-cooled or water-quenched? And what's the effect if the moisture content of the roasted bean is uh, quite high on freezing? Oh, as in, uh, sorry, wh what do you mean by water-quenched? Um, roasting. Where you quench? Oh, in the okay, beans? yeah. So I um I don't know the difference in water content between coffee that's been water quenched versus air air cooled, um, but if the if the coffee has, let's say one percent residual water in it after it's been roasted, I don't see why the cooling method, 
as long as no different chemical reactions were occurring, I don't see why the cooling method would change anything. I was just concerned, perhaps, that the uh, residual amount of water... Yeah, so if the there's... So when you freeze it, it may have a detrimental effect. Indeed. So if there is water around, that's a problem. But I, I, uh, you don't want, I guess you don't want that around in general, even if it's not frozen, right? Yeah. Greg? Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Hey, nice talk. Thank you. Um, there, the material, it was just a materials issue with respect to the grinder burr. There's grinder burr materials that would tolerate the temperature. Sure. Um, so condensation wouldn't be that much of an issue. Mm -hmm. And more correctly, if the dew point temp, if the grinder burrs are above the local dew point temperature, then you're okay. Right. So in a place like, uh, you know, out west where there's low humidity, no problem if you're on the east coast. It could be a problem. Sure. Boston in summer could be a problem, for example. Right. And uh, on a, a maybe a practical note, the problem with uh, frozen coffee, like ground coffee, is usually in the warming process because you don't want um, air, water coming out of the air. Again, yeah. if you're on the west coast, you know, southern California, you're in good shape. If you're on the east coast, it's a problem. Yeah, so you, you raise a good point. So the the... the Absolutely. You don't want water to condense onto the coffee, the ground coffee, as it warms up. And you don't want to have that warming process occurring unless the water, unless the coffee is submerged. So what I'm advocating is actually grinding the frozen coffee and immediately brewing with it, using a bloom to help you get the temperature back up to equilibrium or near equilibrium. Yeah. Yeah. So the other thing I wanted to mention was I'm really glad other people are talking about this business of freezing individual doses because the EK43 workflow is horrid in the traditional sense, but the idea of prepackaging doses of recipeed coffee, freezing it, yeah. and ripping it open and throwing it through the maw of the grinder is really great. Yeah, thank you. I, I think it's exciting. Yeah. I have a question that goes back to the uh, water chemistry, um, and it just may be me not really understanding the bicarbonate cycle, but how much does that affect brewing with back-to-back -back extractions? Uh, when you say back-to-back -back extractions, you, are you thinking in an espresso situation? Or? Yeah, like an espresso situation. Um, so the bicarbonate is dissolved in the water that you're going to be brewing with, and we make the assumption that the bicarbonate is homogeneously distributed through the water in the boiler, which maybe that's not true, maybe it is, but each dose of water has the same amount of bicarbonate in it, regardless of whether it's, uh, you know, the shot number one or shot number ten. That's the ap approximation. Okay. Now, it's not entirely true because, the, the, you know, you might have some crystallization happening inside the boiler, at, you know, at some level. But I think in general, uh, you should be pretty consistent. Gotcha. And would that, like, fluctuate on a daily basis, would you assume? as a, <laughs> Yeah. As a yeah. So, so we didn't even talk about filtration, but absolutely. So the, the, the efficiency of the water filter, the exchange resin or the RO unit or whatever, depends on the incoming water. And that fluctuates because that's just that's a natural fluctuation. So it's really hard to, to uh, standardize this. But what is, what is more valuable, I think, is indeed knowing that if your coffee's tasting flat, that particular day. It may not be because of all of the other multitude of things. It could simply just be because the water's fluctuated a little bit. Right. Yeah. Thank you. I think everybody should tweet hashtag espresso situation. <laughs> Is your book Coffee and Water? That's the title, correct? Uh, yeah, it's Water for Coffee. Wadi, water for Coffee. Is that, you, you showed a slide where you kind of hacked apart a page or two. 
Yeah. Is the book still relevant and helpful for all of us, would you say? Yeah, so, so it is. So there's already some amendments that I published online that you can get uh, that just clarified that, that, uh, that concentration issue that I was discussing about measuring out salts and understanding where you are in the graph. All of, everything in the book is correct. Everything, except the, the pressure discussion, which needs some work uh, because I made an oversimplification. But all the fundamental science there is more or less spot on. It was the only the part where we then applied it to industrial standards. So, so that's all corrected online. So if you already have it, you, you should be able to use it. And if you don't have it, don't, don't buy it now, right? Just we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna release it so it'll be much more homogeneous, right? Yeah. We got one down. We got two more questions, I guess. Hi, um, can you re-explain the baking soda experiment that you can do at home? Sure. So, so in uh, the most trivial example would be to take just squeeze a lemon into a cup, dissolve some water into that lime, lemon juice, or you can, depending on how much you dissolve in there, you're dissolving lemon juice into water, right? But at some point, you've got some lemony water, and then slowly dose in a little bit of baking soda. And just add a, you know, a little pinch and just see, weigh it if you want, if you have a good scale or, or whatever, and see where your, your, your perception of that acidity changes. With practice, so I'm, not a, I'm a super taster, but I'm not a qualified taster. And with practice, you can get yourself down to about 2 ppm resolution. So I, I, I've got about 5 at the moment. But I've seen some, I'm, for instance, Maxwell, can, he's really good. So... You, I, I, I believe you can also do it. Christopher, thank you. Um, could you briefly compare the uh, commercial viability of reverse osmosis versus condensation distillation? Thank you. Cool. <laughs> uh, kind of, so any distillation process either involves low pressure or high temperature or a mixture of the two. Um, the reverse osmosis involves high water pressure uh, and the manufacturing costs associated with making the physical membrane itself. Uh, and we, of, we often forget about the, uh, the uh, economic and at least energy offset of the manufacturing of the device that does the, does the filtration. Both of which, in principle, are perfectly efficient at removing everything besides H2O. But in practice, no membrane is perfect and will let some stuff through. The same cannot be said about distillation. A distillation, in principle, is perfect because those ions are not, are not volatile. You know, if you're doing the phase transformation, you will leave the ions in solution. But it's not overly viable on the small scale because it's extremely expensive. And most of the time, in, in circumstances that we are concerned with, we want to do it in line or in flow. Uh, and that sort of setup would require uh, at least one storage tank, maybe potentially two storage tanks and a footprint that's bigger than what I initially considered for perhaps a small RO unit. But I have not thought about it in more detail than I just conveyed. My curiosity was triggered by the locking uh, device as it used in other countries. Right. Yeah, so, so in that circumstance, I, aren't those devices solar-powered? Yeah, so, so the solar energy is the way they offset the cost, but they're also doing it on large scale, so you have thermal inertia on your side. Uh, but indeed, there's still a storage tank associated with that, that process. 
Uh, and same with, our, same with our own. Like, I would be naive to say that that was not true, but um, I don't think anyone has explored it on a small commercial level. Uh, you know, you typically that device holds like a, you know, a ton of water, for example. But that's a really interesting question. So just out of curiosity, what would be the effect of, um, if I'm acting as an intermediary between um, uh, customers in freezing, thawing, and then refreezing? Would it be at a, a degradation there? Yeah, so, so the customer, the average customer is a, a person who goes to a supermarket, buys some whole bean coffee, and you know, puts it in their freezer to keep it fine, opens the bag, seals the bag back up with, the, with the, you know, the, the metal tie, and puts it back in the freezer again. That process of exposing this cold coffee to atmospheric air that has water in it will cause over time, condensation of water onto the surface of this coffee. It's absolutely hygroscopic, so it's going to absorb some of that. If you do this process a lot of times, I guarantee you're going to observe water, at least ice crystals, somewhere in that bag, and that's something you definitely do not want. So it, you're, it's tricky, because when you're advocating such a thing of freezing coffee for preservation to the general public who do not take the care to properly seal and so on, the freezing-thawing process is not an issue because it's just simply changing temperature. You might have some adverse chemical reactions, but probably not to the appreciable extent. But the, the, the contraindication is that, indeed, the, they're exposing it to air. And so it's hard to say to a general person, put your coffee in the freezer, right? That's not the average conclusion you, you maybe make. Oh. <laughs> uh, well, hey, how, how about we take three more? Because I know Greg's here. I know you want to do one. There's one down the back here as well. So then we'll do those three. We'll start at the back. Yeah, in regards to brewed coffee, is there actually like a, a measurable degradation of volatile compounds that um, basically affect the intensity of aromatics? So um, are, are you saying, do you see compounds coming out of your brewed coffee? Yeah, like once it's being, once it's brewed. Like is there a measurable loss of volatiles that, or degradation of, aromatic quality that we can actually sense? Absolutely. Or is it based off of like, intens is the intensity based off of like evaporation and of sensing that? Well, so you're, you're absolutely losing compounds once you brew that coffee and it's hot. Like they're, they're leaving that cup at a really high rate. Uh, and that's why you have this intense smell of, of coffee if you get down in there, right? Whatever those compounds are, um, they definitely contribute to the overall flavor profile of that cup. And so a coffee that has been cooled allowed to cool to room temperature and then heated back up again does not have the same flavor profile as it did when it was first brewed. The heating process may have caused chemical reactions to occur in the cup on the way back up to temperature, but a lot of that loss of flavor and change of flavor is due to the loss that you had as the coffee cooled. So is a lot of that, is a majority of that, um, the loss of those volatiles occurring on the surface? Well, that, that's At, where you lose evaporation? the... Yeah, so that's where okay. you, that's the interface between the liquid and the, and the essentially you could think of this as an endless volume of space. And so that's where the volatiles are going. It's coming off of that surface, and that surface is, is liberating those compounds. So minimizing the surface, uh, it will minimize that rate because you have to get the compounds to the surface to then liberate them. Uh, so there is a little bit of that, and uh, people have thought about that at least in cup design. Um, and, and certainly in red wine, right, with these, like, large, large surface area cups that channel into narrow areas for your nose. But, yeah, that's an interesting question. Hit it. Um, what projects are you working on coming up that we can look forward to hearing you speak about in the future? Or are you writing about specifically? 
Yeah, so I've got two, uh, two that I'm about to uh, release or send or peer review. Uh, the first one is uh, benefits of using low water pressure in espresso. Um, and I've happily oh, talked... How to low are you talking? Like, how low is low? So the lowest that we are going to go is 4.5. Um, although I've done some work at 1.2, which is pretty low, right? 1.2 bar, that is. Uh, that's essentially atmospheric, right? So it's, um, and 6 bar is sort of the sweet spot. Uh, there's some advantages there. We can talk more about this privately if you'd like. Uh, and the other, the other thing I'm doing right now is working with those guys who you may have seen the article that made the news... Uh, for the mathematical modeling of espresso, right? It was all over the news. So that's actually, um, here we are. Sorry, excuse me, missed slide. So that's actually Will Lee and Jamie Foster, who are both professors at the University of Portsmouth. We've started a project because they're, they don't understand coffee very well, and so they needed a couple of helping hands to get the espresso kinetics correct. And so we're looking at a, a fully empirical model for extraction uh, from a granular bed. So sort of merging some concepts that Greg had introduced earlier today uh, and putting it in the context of actual extraction kinetics as well. Yeah. You want to finish with your final question there, Greg? Yeah? This is, this is sort of a comment about indus, uh, industry and storing. So um, I don't know if you know Barry Jarrett. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he uh, had a company called Riley's Coffee at one time, and he was a roaster supplying, uh, I guess, uh, people in the St. Louis area. And he was convincing stores to freeze his coffee when they got it and sell, sold it out of the freezer section. Yeah. And he then educated people to store it. And it's not – I mean, we already put uh, recommendations on storage of bagged coffee – on a lot of bags and, and tell people to do it this way. It's just an education issue and mainly an issue of warming the coffee before you use it. Indeed. You're, you're, you're right. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I'm standing up here giving an educational seminar, and you know, as you did earlier, too, on some quite complex topics, and it's something we should not shy away from, is people have the capacity to, to do the experiment correctly. It's just a matter of whether we take the time and find a way to communicate it. So, yeah, indeed, of course, if, you, if we could do that again, that'd be great. All right. Thanks for coming. You've been listening to a talk from the SCA Lectures podcast series. To hear more on topics relevant to the specialty coffee industry, visit www.scanews.coffee and subscribe to this lecture series. Thanks for listening. <laughs>